I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode, we hear from Daryl McKissick, CEO and President of McKissick & McKissick. Daryl sheds light on how family legacy, a desire to fight for equity in a white and male-driven industry, and a phone banking campaign led to the rise of one of the nation's top architectural firms. Everyone's really excited to hear your story. So thank you again, Daryl, for being here today. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Margaret. It truly is an honor um, to uh, speak here at the Executive Club, which um, I have been following for 20 years and, and participated in quite a bit. So I'm excited about today. So let's start from the beginning because you have a fantastic story to tell. You know more about your family history than most Americans and especially Americans who are black. We know that one third typically can't trace their family tree past their grandparents and one fifth can't name a great grandparent. You can name this and much more. So tell us about your family history, how this inspired you, all right, Margaret. So our family goes back to my great great grandfather who came to this country in 1790 as a slave. Um, he was a builder as a slave and um, he, he passed a trade of building down to my great grandfather who became a master carpenter. Um, and my, grand, my great grandfather passed our um, his services or his trade down to my grandfather and and his brother. So my grandfather and his great and my great uncle, which is his brother, started our family business in Tennessee in 1905 as architects. They went to school um, to corresponding school to learn architecture um, and then started the firm in 1905. Um, when it was a, they started licensing architects in Tennessee, it was a question if they could even take the test because they were black. But because they had built so many structures in the city, um, the, um, the governor allowed them to take the test and they took their test and they um, passed and their certificates are 117 and 118 in the state of Tennessee, making them the first black arch- licensed architects in the state of Tennessee. Then the governor wrote the neighboring states. Um, So they were really the first licensed black architects throughout the Southeast. So that business was passed to my father. And of course he he carried on the tradition, but um, he uh, also started taking my sister and I to work with him on Saturday so my mother could have a break. And we, he would prop us up on the drawing tables and teach us how to draw. And by the time we were 12 or 13, um, he was actually using our drawings uh, for his clients. So we went to school for both architecture and engineering. I'm a licensed PE. And, um, and then came out and um, learned the construction industry by working for a major construction company in the country. I didn't know if you, but we're gonna get into some of the more you know recent stuff too. Um, so let's, Fast forward to when you started your business, right? So you started in 1990. It was the beginning of a recession and you had a trifecta of factors that were working against you. You were young, you were black, you were a woman. 
So share with us how those experiences influenced your decision-making in those crucial, crucial first years of forming your business. And maybe reflect back on how that compares to how you experience that today. You know, has anything changed or not? Okay, well, that's a lot to unpack, Margaret, but we will get right to it. Um, so when I started my business, I have been out in the industry working uh, at uh, Turner Construction, which is a large construction company um, in Washington, D.C., and then I worked at Howard and I ran all the facilities for the president of Howard. I worked directly for him. So I personally had the experience, I had the training and I knew how to get buildings built or get projects implemented to implement them really well. Um, so I really didn't really think about being black, female and young. I thought more about not having any money <laughs> I, uh, you know, I had this burning sensation on the inside. People would probably call it passion that I just wanted to try my own thing. I could have always gone back to the family business and I could have gotten another job, you know, in corporate America. But for some reason, I wanted my little red wagon that I could push to the right or to the left just to see if it would even work. And, um, so I just did that. I put together a list of 300 people that I thought maybe had construction dollars that could hire me. And I started a calling campaign. I just started call, cold calling people. Um, of course, I wanted to avoid having to see them because I couldn't bring anybody bagels or coffee because <laughs> I didn't have any money. Um, <laughs> And when I got through my first 150, I had so much work, I never got through um, the other 150. And did I experience in that process racism, sexism, and um, you know just any kind of ism for being the trifecta? Absolutely, yes. And I would say, you know, my very one of my very first presentations, I uh, went to a major university here. Um, and said, you know, and showed them my presentation. And when I finished, it was a group of all men. Um, and they were quite a bit older than me. <laughs> and uh, they were white. There was one black guy um, in the group um, and me. But when I finished, the lead guy looked at me and he said, little lady, there is nothing you can do for us. And I just looked at him um, and looked at, held his hand really tightly. And I thanked him for the opportunity to present in front of him. And I also told him, I look forward to working to you, working for you in the near future. So why did I do that? I did that because I believe that no one can define who I am and where I'm going. My ancestors did not allow anybody to define them. Had they done that, they would have remained slaves, okay? And they would not have been the leaders that they have been. So I can say that the inspiration of my ancestors that I did, that did help me to move forward in times of difficulty. Because when I look back, my other grandfather on my mother's side, 
He graduated from Harvard in 1929 with a PhD. Now, do I think that my grandfather's experienced a lot more challenges than me? Absolutely. It was really, really tough for them. And a lot of times they didn't know if they were going to live through it. Their lives were threatened. So whenever I have a major obstacle like that, I just keep going. And I've had to stare down the barrel of thousands of no's to get to my first yes. But that's exactly what I do. I think it's persistence, it's determination, and that's what it takes. Um, and even today, you ask me, has it changed um, since before? So what I would say now is we are funded. <laughs> we do have a great portfolio, but yet we still get discriminated against because we are owned by an African-American woman. And yes, I'm older. <laughs> So some of it went away. <laughs> but the other two that I really cannot do anything about it, you know, how others feel or view me, I cannot change. The only thing I can do is continue to go forward. So, yes, we do get questions, questioned by future clients. Um, and what I mean by that. So you finished. Um, some of the nation's most iconic landmark projects yet. When you go to a meeting or you're presenting your wares to a client, you still are under more scrutiny. And it could be something like, you know, your leaders that you present, they continue to say, well, maybe this other company's leader is better. But I could say, but my leader has done five projects that you're looking to do. Um, why would that make the other leader better other than the fact that that leader is not a minority and not a female or not owned by a minority or female firm? So yes, it still exists. And um, it was hidden for many, many years. And, it, and this is a an uncomfortable conversation, Margaret. People don't want to have it because, of course, personal biases are um, hard to admit. But just to put everybody at ease, I would like to say everybody has personal biases. We're born with, well, I don't know if we're really born with them, but I would say they come about because of our experiences in life. And it's not a lot that we can do about them. You wake up one day and you realize it, oh my gosh, I really have a personal bias about this. And, you know, I just think it's what do you do when you realize that you have it? And that's what 2020 has been all about. I feel it's given us 2020 vision um, at, in the world so that we can see clearer into 2021 and beyond. It's removing the scales from our eyes so that we know where we stand. You know, we're at a point now where you can't be an innocent bystander on the sidelines, silent, or acting like you don't have an opinion when you really do, because nowadays you have to do that. You know, it's all coming to light. Even when you try to hide how you feel, something happens and it comes out. So what do we do? to move forward. I just feel like we have to be bridges. 
Um, but to answer your question, yes, and I can go into the bridges thing in a little while. If you well, I know, and I know you've put a lot of thought behind this, and you have a plan, as I'm sure no one who knows you is surprised about, and we're going to get into that plan, you know, in a little bit, so we're going to talk more about this for sure. So we know some of your incredible, iconic projects, truly astounding. What was your first big break? What was the project that really got your firm going? Oh my gosh, it was the U.S. Treasury Building. And I had the opportunity um, to, when President Clinton was in office, I was invited to a reception and I had the opportunity to meet Secretary Rubin, who was the Secretary of Treasury at the time. And um, he introduced me to the head of procurement at Treasury. So after that event, I would go to Treasury every two weeks and in those days you could just walk into the government buildings because we had not experienced sept September 11th and I would just go in and I would ask for the head of procurement his name was Wes Holly and I would say Wes I would love to work for Treasury do you have any work for me and he would say no I don't have any work for you well I did that every two weeks for two years and finally, one day when I went in there, he said, could somebody just find Ms. McKissick something? I am just tired of seeing her. So they pulled out this project and it was to do design reviews on an electrical distribution system that they were putting into Maine Treasury. And I'm like, I'll take it. I was just so excited. So after I signed the contract, which was only like a couple of days later, um, I got home around 1030 at night and the phone rang and I answered it. And this guy said, can I speak to Mr. McKissick? And I said, well, he's dead. <laughs> he said, I said, what kind of jokester is this? <laughs> said, I'm laughing on the telephone because of course I'd had a glass of wine at dinner celebrating my new contract. And, um, he says, well, uh, this is the secret service and i said oh yeah right tell me another one and so he says well lady the treasury building is going up in smoke i said i just left downtown and i didn't see any smoke he said well why don't you turn on your television so i turned on the tv and there was the treasury building going up in smoke and i'm i just said oh my god this really is the secret service so I said, how can I serve my country? <laughs> and so he says, well, we're looking for Daryl McKissick. And I said, well, that's me. So anyway, what happened was that uh, they had hired a blow a uh, roofer to replace the roof. And the blowtorch that the roofer was using started the fire. And it happened to be over the library the cash room, which is where the secretary does all of his receptions. And, um, and so they needed someone to come in and fix it. And the secretary said, so Treasury usually uses GSA to do all of their contracting. And they don't usually have anybody with a contract open to do design or construction. And so the secretary just said, I don't want GSA to touch my building. Is there anybody that has a contract <laughs> that can do design and construction? 
And so Wes, the head of procurement, said, there is one person, and that's Daryl McKissick. <laughs> so that was our big break because we went in, the building was 100% smoke damage, 20% fire and water damage. And we uh, had three days to get them back in 80% of the, the smoke damage part. And then another few months to get into the rest of it. But while we were there, we realized the building was not operating efficiently, that it really was not up with times in terms of technology. And so we put together a plan to renovate Treasury. And the, the secretary gave us that project. And so that was 12 years <laughs> through three secretaries um, that we were there renovating our main Treasury. So that was our break. <laughs> Incredible. Such a great story and so inspiring, the persistence, right? And what it takes when you're an entrepreneur and just going after it again and again and again. And who would have ever thought that that would have turned into the opportunity that it did for you? So that was DC. You now have offices in DC, Baltimore, Chicago, LA, Dallas, Austin, big nationwide presence. And we are in Chicago, and I know you live in Chicago, so let's just talk about Chicago a little bit. You know, why Chicago? And what role does our city play in your overall business strategy? Okay, well, I have been in Chicago for 20 years, and um, there was there's always been great synergy between DC and Chicago. And even in our industry, we see where a Chicago person is hired in DC, a DC person is hired in Chicago to manage major projects. Um, and Chicago is much bigger than DC. Of course, as a business owner, you want to grow. And um, I had um, cousins there, Eric McKissick and his lovely wife, Cheryl. And so I um, already felt like I had kind of a base. And so I just moved to Chicago. And you know what? I just love Chicago. And to this day, my closest friends live in Chicago. And when I got there, I found Chicago to be a very vibrant, um, uh, forward-moving city. Um, and, you know, it's just very exciting for me. And it has been a wonderful experience from day one, um, you know, and it's, you know, every city is different, but I have to say Chicago has a, a special place in my heart <laughs> and I truly enjoy it. Um, on the construction side, you know, we started out in Chicago public schools and, and that grew and then we moved over to Chicago housing. Um, you know, we came during the daily administration and there was a lot of work going on and there was work at the PBC. We started our aviation practice in Chicago because of DOA, Department of Aviation. Um, they were just embark embarking up on um, expanding the runways and building new runways to cut down on um, the, the times that it takes to come in and out of Chicago by flight. And um, that actually kicked us off on aviation and we've been there for 20 years on the aviation contract. Um, so Chicago's just been great. And even on the private side, um, we've been working for 
Exelon, but it started with our relationship with ComEd. Um, and, you know, from ComEd, Exelon started buying up companies east, going east, and <laughs> took us with them. But it would never have started had it not started uh, in Chicago. We've been doing work for People's Gas, which has been exciting. We've done a little bit of work for BMO, and um, that's been great. So, you know, I just think Chicago has been a pivotal place for us to become national. It was our first real foray, foray out of the East Coast, and it gave us a platform to go west to LA and a platform to go southwest to Texas. And uh, so it's made a big difference in our, in our corporation. Yeah. Um, you know, our mission at the club is to connect and grow Chicagoland's businesses and business leaders. And we've been working closely with you know, the mayor's office on the economic recovery plan and the Chicago Community Trust and just doing a lot of programming around Chicago and business in Chicago and promoting it. And so just as a business owner and operator, I'll ask you both questions. You know, what makes Chicago great for doing business and what makes it challenging? Things that, you know, as a city you would like to see us work on for business. Okay, well, what makes you great is that um, you see what you get most times and people genuinely want to help. And, you know, I'll just never forget my one of my first, well, my couple of first meetings in Chicago, I was just shocked how people just sat there and talked to me. I felt like I was back in the South where people take the time and they care about your kids and you, your family, and, you know, what's fun to do in the city. <laughs> and then you talk about business, um, you know, in other parts of the country, and especially on the East Coast, people want to shuffle you out of their office. <laughs> pretty quickly and um, you know and not only that also in Chicago I would say the connection piece that you're talking about they're so open to connecting you to the next person so I feel like while you have this great current and you asked me about the challenges while you have this great current of moving forward and um, and I find the people uh, to be to have a lot of culture there's a lot of universities there, so people are very educated. So you have this great positive current that's moving forward. But there is an undercurrent, I do feel, in regards to racism, and, and, um, and I've seen it, and I'm usually kind of shocked because I'm like, these people are so progressive and they're so caring, but yet um, I can see that the city is segregated in many areas or, you know, several areas throughout the city. And I know when I got there, um, the work that was given to minority firms were really the smaller insignificant pieces. They weren't the large pieces that we're seeing today. I mean, I have to say in the 20 years, in the past 20 years, I've seen major improvement in that. But there's still, um, there's still a little bit of work to do on the racism piece and having true equity for all people. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where I would like to, to see some improvement because 
we we manage stakeholders expectations on all of our projects and each of these stakeholders have a vision or a um, they have a strategy that they want to see implemented so what we have to do is really listen to that try to understand that and try to bring all the stakeholders together while evaluating the facts what's really true because there's a you know what happens when people get into their vacuum and they're set on you know their their position they see things differently and they sometimes just don't even see the facts so we have to figure out how to um, present these facts and um, sort of help people to understand each other and it's not really that we're so far apart and a lot of it is fear because some people are fearing they don't want to give up what they've had for generations other people are saying, you know, we don't want to give up. We just want fairness. We want equity. And all of that really is having respect for each other. Um, you know, and if you have this respect, you've got to have trust. I truly believe trust changes everything. And what we're seeing playing out in front of us today is a lot of mistrust. But if we sit down and talk to each other and make see that we're all human and humanize things as opposed to not, um, I think that we can work together. And so I just kind of want to be that bridge. And I hope that a lot of people want to be that bridge. And that's kind of what the seven point plan is about. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shore microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shore lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Um, you know, so much work is being done now by companies on their purpose and then as leaders as well as, you know, defining their purpose as a leader. And as I'm hearing you talk, I just love this bridge metaphor for you, that that being your purpose in this world, because it also has, you know, the construction and design, you know, of a bridge and then also you being the bridge to all these things. It's, I mean, it just seems like a wonderful metaphor for you and your purpose in this time in this world. It's great. You are the bridge. Thank you so much, because just think about it. All of us could be bridges. Now, if you look in the women, if, if you look at the gender world, right, and you're working alongside, um, you know, a male or female and, and you're feeling weird about that, why not extend a bridge? A bridge is, is about getting over an obstacle, right? So why not become a friend or an acquaintance of that person. There are black and white people that do not have black and white friends. Why not yeah. just go get one? <laughs> go have a drink with one, okay? Um, and just see, you know, how it is. You can't, you can't define a whole group of people by what you see on TV, right? Or what your parents told you. You really have to go out there and experience it yourself. And those are the kind of bridges that I'm talking about. You know, I was um, 
you know, a friend of mine was on a plane and asked this, this white guy who's a senior president, senior vice president advisor, um, have you ever had a black person over to your house for dinner? And you know what? He says, well, you know, my kids had a basketball coach and, I, and he was black and he came over. Well, that's a little bit different. That is not really, that's someone that's servicing your kids. Or, you know, well, the nanny is Latino. Is, does that count? No, that does not count. You have to invite someone over to dinner that is your equal. And, and then that to me is extending a bridge. Um, and the same in the other direction, you know what I mean? Is, you know, we all have to do it. Yeah. And, that, and then you can talk about these things. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're full of so many great lessons. So one more kind of reflecting back on the business for the entrepreneurs that are joining us. So I know this is always a tough question to answer because everything has led you to this point and this point is exactly where you should be. But just from a, a rational business perspective. Is there anything you would have done differently in your approach to growing and scaling your business in hindsight now? Um, no, I can't would have. I mean, we sort of did the textbook stuff of having a strategic plan every five years, putting together a great board. Um, I layered that with my passion and what my passion says I should do. And I've had great mentors. And my mentors are everything. Black women, white women, white males, <laughs> Latinos, they're everything. Because I believe in not only just, you know, celebrating it, but truly embracing diversity. And, you know, this goes back to, um, I had the opportunity to go out to the Apple headquarters in Cupertino, the ring, which is hard to go to. But at lunchtime, I happened to be out watching everybody going to lunch. And I was just so amazed because they had every age, every gender, <laughs> every race and ethnic group you could imagine. And what hit me was, is that Apple wants to hear from everybody because that's where the best solution comes from. It's from everybody. We all have a unique purpose in this world. And that unique purpose is important to your corporation, um, to the world, to the community, to everybody. We all bring something special. And we don't need to hide behind that. We don't need to retaliate. We don't have to um, ram it up somebody's throat. <laughs> We just have to let it out. And I think everybody should be respectful of everybody's um, perspective. And that's what we do at McKissick. You know, for so many years, I just didn't even have a seat at the table. I was told to put my head down and do my work. And that's what I did. Um, but when I started my company, I started my company where I wanted everybody to have a seat at the table. And so we have town halls every two weeks. And because of COVID, we're on Zoom. And I get to see 
everybody having a seat at the table. And I love hearing everybody's solutions. And, you know, you can't pick all the solutions, right? You got to go one way. But it's important that everybody is heard. So you talked about the Treasury Building being your real big break, a 12-year project, which is extraordinary. You know, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the George H.W. Bush Library Foundation, the Lincoln Thomas Jefferson and Martin Luther King Jr. Memorials. But I'm curious of all of those, you know, which was your favorite? How did it make you feel? Why was that project your favorite one? Whichever one I'm working on at that time is my favorite. Um, they all bring so much um, to society. Um, and they all have a different meaning. And they are pieces of a puzzle. And so for me, it's hard for me to say which one's better. You know, one stands for civil rights. One, um, it stands for the points of light. <laughs> That's George Bush. Um, the uh, African-American Museum is, you know, American history through the lens of African-Americans. That, that, that perspective has never been on the National Mall. Um, the Obama Presidential Center, I mean, oh my gosh, what can you say? That's Obama. <laughs> and the wonderful things that he did for eight years that we have missed. And to be a part of his legacy has truly been um, an honor. Um, you know, they all are, have played a role in shifting America's paradigm and thought in terms of humanity. Um, and it's just been a blessing that our family, who has gone through so many obstacles um, and challenges, have had the opportunity to lead these projects um, is, you know, I just, I don't even have words to say about that, except, yeah. just, you know, I have joy. <laughs> so for a lot of entrepreneurs starting out, sometimes like the need for revenue can just drive them to feel like they just need to take anything and everything that comes their way, right? Like they can't really have the liberty to say no to things until they, you know, get some revenue and get the flywheel going. Um, but for you, were there any projects that you've said no to? Yes, I have always felt that we should not do projects that we can't be successful in. Because, you know, when we started out, I took the mission of my ancestors to be the mission of our company, which was to be trustworthy partners, um, which means that you overpromise, I mean, underpromise and overdeliver but you have to be able to deliver. And I think that's why we've had so much success and so much, so many repeat clients. Um, 15 years ago, because of, of experiences of, of seeing dilapidated schools and the experience of our kids living in these places that were despicable, they were worse than prisons, our mission changed. And that mission was that we um, would our, that we would enhance the lives of people through the design and construction industry. So at that point, then we were saying, okay, we're only going to take jobs where we're going to be an asset to the job, 
but we want to take jobs that truly make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, it's not just the end user, which could be the person that's going to experience a monument or a um, memorial or a kid sitting in a warm, safe environment um, or a person sitting in an office and they love going there every day. They're excited about going to work. But we also want to be, you know, um, we want to enhance the lives of our clients and make it easier for them to do their job every day. You know, if you are managing a major business and you have to worry about the construction piece of it every day, because that could keep you up at night. It's a, always a huge piece of your bottom line. <laughs> Um, you know, when you can lay down and not worry about that or go to work that day and know that you're going to, you know, you know, you can keep concentrating on what you do and allowing us to concentrate on what we do and that we do that so well that you don't have to think about that. That is truly enhancing someone's life. Don't take projects that are, um, you know, that don't enhance people's lives. Now, it was a time where we did some projects like prisons that we don't do anymore. And it was actually Kamala Harris who said, Daryl, I can't help you with prisons because I don't believe in that really. And so um, I, uh, I said, you know, she's right. Why are we doing this? And so we haven't done it in 20 years. Yeah. So just to set the stage for everyone. So it's an $11.3 trillion architecture, engineering, construction industry. It also employs 13 million people. So about just under 10% of all Americans who work. So we're talking about a massive, massive industry um, and employment sector. So we had a lot of things happen this year. We had COVID, um, we had ongoing you know, escalation of the, the Me Too movement and you know, the tremendous um, movement in the Black Lives Matter movements. So all of these things together present an opportunity to radically change this industry from the inside out. But as we know, anything's an opportunity only if we make it an opportunity, right? It just, it's not going to happen just because suddenly we say, okay, this is a turning point. You know, what's actually going to make it a turning point? You have been an industry leader now. Um, for a while and really thought about these things and you have outlined a seven-step plan forward. Step one, acknowledge racism. And you talked about this a little bit already, but if you just want to, you know, hit on this just a little bit more quickly. Yeah, I think that prior to George Floyd, it was difficult to even acknowledge racism. But when you see it coming from our children, um, you kind of say, you know what, we have to acknowledge it. So the first thing is we have to grow up and say, yes, we have racism. Yeah. Step two, hire, enable, and support minority-owned businesses. Right. And this really um, helps the economic, the wealth gap that we're experiencing between um, African-Americans and whites in America. Um, and it's because they are hired, we're hired less, we're not promoted as much, and our companies are not are not hired or contracted with as much. 
Step three, eliminate racist policies and practices in our businesses. Yes, and that's, I think, kind of self-explanatory. Um, you know, there are, you know, there are policies and practices that on the surface may not look like um, their races are, you know, and that they do are parody, but, you know, that has held me back many times <laughs> when people pull up stuff and policies that are kind of antiquated and they're really written through the eyes of someone that's never lived in my shoes. So they really don't understand how those policies and practices are affecting others. And it loops back to one, right? It's a loop. So it's like we, we think that these things, like, oh, there's no racism built in, but yet it's not acknowledging the things that are there, the undercurrent. So number four, require MWBEs to be direct suppliers. And so I think this will be interesting for the audience to understand like, why this is so important. Right. Um, because... So a lot of times uh, minority firms are hired as a subcontractor. And oftentimes what happens, whatever they were supposed to receive in the contract, they don't receive because they're the, um, the subcontractor and they don't hold the contractor with the owner. And they also have difficulty getting to the owner because it's hard to go around the prime contractor if you're the sub. So you can't even talk about how you were not given what you were promised. And I've had that happen to me many times. Mm -hmm. um, but really, MBEs are equipped and capable to be the prime contractor and to be contracted with directly with the owner. And I would say that more than 50%, 60% of our work is prime work where we are directly in contracts with the client. Um, and it really makes the wealth gap um, shorter because you know, you're at the top and you are getting exactly what you want. Now here's the, here's the good part for the companies that really do wanna see diversity you too can really count how much diversity the minority or woman firm is getting if they're contracting directly with you. And we've had, you know, major companies in Chicago, and I have to give a shout out to People's Gas, who really wanted McKissick to be in the lead, and the same with Exelon, and um, has always pushed that. And it has been one of our major supporters. Uh, so number five, develop creative strategies and programs to hire, train, retain, and promote a diverse workforce. Right. And really give them a seat at the table. And a lot of times it starts in your boardroom. <laughs> um, if, if your minority and women employees see a diverse board member, it makes them feel better about working there. Now, McKinsey has done studies for the last decade about how hiring 
um, and promoting diversity in your companies um, increases your bottom line. And that's because of who you're selling to. Um, your end sellers are diverse in most cases, even across the world, not just in the United States, but across the world. And so it makes, um, you know, it makes your clients more comfortable and a lot of clients are requiring it these days mm -hmm. uh, and then getting a perspective that's not monolithic but inclusive of all people as i said earlier really gives you the best solutions yeah number six enforce strict minority supplier goals yes because oftentimes we'll put out there well we'd like to see 20%, 30%, 40%. But it's not, we have to see you do 40% and above. And what is your real history in working with minority firms? And how do you treat them? Actually, ask them from a, 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 for a reference letter from the minority firms that these major companies have worked with. And then you'll see. I just wish that somebody asked me when I was coming along, you know, how were you treated? <laughs> it makes a difference. Yeah. And number seven, invite minority suppliers in underserved neighborhoods. Right, and a lot of times we're building, um, especially with the opportunity zones, we're building in underserved neighborhoods. So instead of catering food, from your normal place, why not buy food from that neighborhood? Why not stay in that neighborhood to, you know, to, 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 to do the things that you do as opposed to continuing to do the traditional? Um, it brings the whole neighborhood up. So yeah. that's what that's really about. You know, it is interesting because you are the prime, you're direct contracting most of your projects now. So how did you make that um, leap? How did you go from being a sub to that and, and now you are the lead contractor? I did just that, Margaret. I went <laughs> prime when I started talking to my clients directly. Yeah. And them, you know, I had to convince my clients that I could do the work. Um, and I started with subbing to major firms and, and McKissick as the prime. And then, it, then they started realizing, oh, wow, Daryl's people can actually do this and they don't have to be a sub. Um, so that's how that started. And I have to say in every city that we've done work in, we've helped to build the minority capacity, the people behind us, um, because we believe that's key. And, you know, MBE and WBE sustainability is what we're talking about here. So what we see as women and minorities is that we can get our first job and then what happens? You know, if you don't get the second job, then you go back to where you were. Sustainability is where you continue to get a steady amount of work so that you can grow. That's what happens with majority companies they get a check from those from that client every single month. Let that go down. <laughs> See what happens. Um, 
well, it should be the same for minorities and women that, you know, they too are getting sustainable work. So we feel like we are one of our brand pillars is MBE authority because we've lived it, but we're also trying to implement it for others in all the cities that we go to. Yeah. You just have to go to the client to start talking to them directly. Have that swagger that you've developed over the years. So we have to wrap, which makes me very sad because there's a lot more I wanted to talk with you about. And we have covered a lot of ground. So my last question for you will be, you know, just the most important lesson you've learned along the way. Um, I would say is to be very clear about myself and very open to others. Yeah. And I think that says it. I don't know how much more time we have. I Go on. I know we are out of time, but I mean, it's been such a joy to talk with you. Um, you're just so inspiring and thank you so much for being here, sharing your story and your journey. It's been such a pleasure. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.